0: To the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth, one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Acts, chapter 11, verse 1, as we follow along with today's lesson.
1: Let's turn to Acts, chapter 11, as we continue our journey through the New Testament. Now, it seems like eons ago uh, that we were with Peter as he went by direction of the Spirit to the house of the Roman centurion, Cornelius, who was in the uh, city of Caesarea. And how that, as Peter was sharing with them the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit suddenly descended upon them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit as on the day of Pentecost. And there was speaking in tongues and evidences of the power of the Holy Spirit that had come upon the Gentiles. When the Holy Spirit came upon the Gentiles, they immediately concluded that God was no respecter of persons and that Gentiles could actually be saved. Up until this time, the Jews felt that a Gentile could not be saved. They felt that to be saved, if you were a Gentile, you'd have to first become a Jew. But now they realize that God is no respecter of persons and that all of those who call upon him will be saved. Now, this is a radical departure for the early church. Uh, this whole thing sort of began a little earlier when under persecution, Philip went to Samaria. Samaria. And he preached Christ unto them, and the Samaritans received the gospel. Back in the first chapter, verse 8, Jesus said to his disciples, You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. So up until now, we have seen their witness in Jerusalem. And as persecution came, they spread throughout Judea, preaching the word. Then Philip went to Samaria, preached Christ unto them. Many believed and were baptized. And now as we get into chapter 11, we're going to see how it is spreading in the beginning of the spread into all the world going beyond the Jewish borders, coming at the end of the chapter into the Gentile world. The beginning of it, of course, was with Peter going to Cornelius, chapter 10. But as we get into chapter 11, Peter's going in to the house with Cornelius is not a proper thing for a Jew to do according to their tradition. And you have to recognize that up until this point, Christianity was just sort of a Jewish sect. It was a sect of Judaism, and it was really just sort of kept within the confines of Judaism. But now a break has been made, directed by the Holy Spirit, and to the Gentiles the gospel has been taken. So the apostles and the brethren that were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter was come to Jerusalem, they that were of the circumcision contended with him. They called him on the carpet. They that are of the circumcision describes those who were of the traditional Jewish beliefs. That to be saved you had to become a Jew, by, uh, and that you did by the rite of baptism and circumcision, and then the obedience to the Mosaic law. So they who held to this belief that you had to be a Jew to be saved, they called Peter in and they accused him. They said, you went in to men who were uncircumcised and you did eat with them. That was their charge. Now, eating with a person in that culture was an extremely significant act. They considered eating with someone tantamount to becoming one with that person. That is why the Jew would never eat with the Gentile. You see, if we're eating together, especially in that culture where you used your hands, and where you had just a common bowl of soup on the table, you had common bowls of salads and sauces... And you had a common loaf of flat bread. The custom was just to pull off some of the bread and dip in the sauces and and in the soup and eat it. And and you you were using your hands. And there was no rule of etiquette that you don't dip twice. (laughs) And thus, there is a real idea of sharing when you ate together of germs and everything else. <laughs> so in their minds, they saw it as, as becoming one with that other person because I'm eating from the same loaf that you're eating, and thus it's becoming a part of my body. It, uh, my, uh, it's going into my system. My body is assimilating it, and it's becoming a part of my body. But it's also becoming a part of your body, that same loaf of bread. So in a mystical way, we are being united as we eat together of the same bread. And, and they, they saw it that way, and to them it was a very significant act to eat with someone. You remember they accused Jesus. They said, he eats with sinners and with publicans. I mean, that was unspeakable in their minds. To dare to become one with a sinner or a publican. So they said, you did eat with them. Now, Peter, if he were the first pope, (laughs) wasn't infallible. And he is being called on the carpet. He's being called to answer for his actions. And though he rightly defends what he did as we move later in the book of Acts we will find that well actually in the book of Galatians we find that Peter came down to the church that was established at Antioch and before certain of the Jews came from Jerusalem he was eating with the Gentile believers in Antioch But when these people came from Jerusalem, Peter separated himself and would only eat with the Jews. So Peter was having a difficult time, even though he is called on the carpet for this. He himself is not really comfortable yet eating with Gentiles. And in his separating of himself, it created a division in Antioch. And uh, so Paul had to withstand him to his face and rebuked him because before certain brethren came from Jerusalem, he was eating with the Gentiles. Once they came, he separated himself and it caused hard feelings. It caused division in the church in Antioch. So you did eat with them. But Peter rehearsed the matter from the beginning and he expounded it in order unto them. Now, In those days, writing was not the easiest thing in the world. You wrote on parchments, and thus you wanted to conserve your words, because parchment was rather scarce. When Luke first wrote the book of Acts he wrote it on a parchment and the size of the book of Acts would have taken a parchment of about 35 feet long that would be rolled up and but you get longer than that and the parchments would become very bulky so they tried to keep them sort of limited and thus for him to tell the same story twice in other words we have read the story in chapter 11 as it actually was happening. Now he repeats it again and allows Peter to tell the whole story to the church in Jerusalem, which indicates that this is a very important juncture as far as the church is concerned. The church Going to the Gentiles or the Gentiles receiving the grace of God. It's an extremely important juncture in the church and thus Luke sees necessary to repeat the story uh, for the importance of this particular experience of the door of opportunity to be saved being extended now to the Gentiles. So Peter tells them of just how it happened. I was in the city of Joppa, and I was praying. And in a trance, I saw a vision. Now, God oftentimes spoke to men through visions. God oftentimes spoke to people through dreams. And it was often that dreams did have a spiritual significance. As a general rule, dreams had to be interpreted. And so God would give to certain people the gift of interpreting dreams. Visions were much like a dream, only they were in a state of awakeness rather than dreaming. You were awake, but there was sort of a trance. And in this trance, you were able to see into the spirit world. Now, there is a spirit world. We are surrounded by it. We are in it. It's, there is a spirit world around us that is just as real as our physical world. And a vision is a gift whereby a person can see into the spirit realm and see the things that are happening in the realm of the spirit around him. In the Old Testament, we find that this gift of seeing into the spirit world was exercised many times by the prophets, especially that of Elisha the prophet. But so many times, Ezekiel would describe the vision that he had, that insight into the spirit world. The book of Revelation was a vision that was given to John. Now, in the realm of the spirit, there is no time. Time is a material, physical substance. It doesn't exist in the realm of the spirit. Thus, in seeing in the spirit world... You can see things that have not yet happened in the material world of time. John, he said, was taken by the Spirit unto the day of the Lord. That is, as he described the battle of Armageddon and all, he was seeing it in the Spirit, though it has not yet transpired, but I believe will soon be transpiring. So there, you, you escape the time continuum when you come into the realm of the Spirit, And in the capacity of seeing spiritual things, it's in a vision. So he saw this vision. God spoke to him through a vision. Uh, The promise concerning the Holy Spirit through Joel in the last days, God said, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. God has often communicated to people by these methods. So Peter describes, I was in a trance, and I saw a vision, and there was a certain vessel that descended as it had been a great sheet, and it was let down from heaven by the four corners And it came even to me. So here he is in prayer, and he goes into this trance, and he sees this big sheet tied on the four corners, the rope letting it down from heaven. And when I had fastened my eyes upon it, I considered and I saw four-footed beast and wild beast and creeping things and the fowls of the air, a real menagerie. And I heard a voice saying unto me, arise, Peter, slay and eat. But I said, not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered into my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, what God has cleansed, that call not thou call, that call not thou common. And Peter said, this was done three times. And then it was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, immediately there were three men already come to the house where I was. And they were sent from Caesarea unto me. And the Spirit bade me go. So Peter is saying it was the Spirit that instructed me to go. He is defending the fact that he went and and ate with them and brought the gospel. The Spirit bade me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered into the man's house. So Peter took six Jews with him suspicioning that God might be doing something and he would have to answer for it. And so he has his witnesses all set. And he showed us how that he had seen an angel. When we entered into the man's house, he showed us, that is Cornelius, how that he had seen an angel in his house, which stood and said unto him, send men to Joppa, call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell thee words whereby thou shalt and all of your house be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them as on us at the beginning. So the Lord was working on both ends, as I believe he always does. The Lord had worked on Cornelius' end. In a vision, the Lord told him to send to uh, Joppa, the house of Simon the Tanner, there is a man whose surname is Simon. And he is to come and to share with you the way of the gospel. Peter, in the meantime, the Lord was speaking to him. So that when the men came and said, our master saw a vision and, you know, we're, you're supposed to come with us the Lord had already dealt with Peter and he knew that he was to go. He works on both ends. I'm always a little suspicious of those who come to me with a message from the Lord. I'm disappointed that he lost my address. (laughs) And I always take it under advisement. Peter said, when the Holy Spirit fell upon them, Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So Peter is equating this experience of the Holy Spirit to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Separate from the baptism of water, and he, I, he sees it as, as Jesus said, John baptized with water, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit came upon those in the house of Cornelius, Peter was reminded of the words of Jesus as he saw them being baptized with the Holy Spirit. So he said, For as much then as God gave them the like Gift as he did unto us who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I that I could withstand God? Now, you've called me in on the carpet. You're contending with me because I went to the Gentiles. But look, the Holy Spirit directed me to go. While I was speaking, the Holy Spirit fell on them, and God did it. Who am I to withstand God? In other words, don't blame me for what God did. It was the work, the direct work of God in bringing to the Gentiles salvation and the Holy Spirit. So when they heard these things, they held their peace. What can you say? So often, when a person is doing something which I deem to be rather foolish, and I seek to counsel them, so often they'll say, But the Lord showed me, or the Lord led me, and that sort of ends the whole thing. I mean, what can you say? Now, there are many times that I doubt that the Lord has spoken to them. But if they're convinced that God has directed them, then there's not much you can do. You just have to hold your peace and wait for the thing to crash and then go pick up the pieces. So here is Peter, he's saying, look, the... God sent me, the Holy Spirit came on them. Who am I? I can't resist God. Now we enter into a new phase. Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose on Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch preaching the word to none but the Jews only. Notice that God used the persecution to spread the gospel. And these people went as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, preaching the gospel, but limiting their preaching to the Jews only. It was still in their minds a Jewish experience. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which, when they were come to Antioch, spake to the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. So now there are those, and they are from Cyprus and Cyrene, and they, in Antioch, are preaching to the Grecians, going now beyond the limits of just Jews only, They're beginning to share the gospel with the Gentiles, the Grecians. Now, Antioch was a major city of the world at that time. In fact, it was the third largest and most important city in the world. Rome was first, Alexandria was next, and Antioch was the third most important city and largest city in the world at that time time. But Antioch was known as the Las Vegas of the world at that time. It was sin city. It was pleasure city. The pleasure never ceased. Night and day, nightclubs and all kinds of entertainment. The great temple of the goddess Daphne was outside of the city in a laurel grove. Daphne, according to the story, was a beautiful young girl, and the god Apollo fell in love with her and began to pursue her. And he caught her in... Well, actually, she was saved by being turned into a laurel branch from the pursuit of Apollo. So her temple was in the midst of a laurel grove. And the priestesses of the temple were prostitutes. And thus in the groves, uh, there was the worship of Daphne uh, by the uh, Prostitutes and so forth. It was a part of their licentious worship. To this city that was known for its licentiousness, known for its ribaldry, the gospel came. It is interesting that the Bible doesn't tell us the names of those who shared the gospel unnamed men from Cyprus and Cyrene shared the gospel with the Gentiles there in Antioch, but we don't know who they are. And I sort of like that. Here is a great work where now really for the first time openly the gospel is coming to the Gentiles. We've seen a slow movement to the Samaritans Peter to the house of Cornelius but now an open proclamation of the gospel to the Gentiles by unnamed individuals in this pagan city of Antioch but an extremely important city and the hand of the Lord was with them whoever they were and a great number believed it was a movement of God and And a great number of people had come to a faith in Jesus, and they turned to the Lord. Then tidings of these things came to the ears of the church, which was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas, that he should go as far as Antioch. Now, Barnabas is first mentioned in chapter 4, where he sold his possession, and put the money in the church's treasury. He is later spoken of as when Paul the Apostle was converted, the church in Jerusalem was sort of hesitant to receive him into fellowship. They weren't sure if he was an undercover agent for the priest. But it was Barnabas that brought Paul in and and told them how that God had used Paul in Damascus in sharing the truth and that the conversion was genuine. But when there was a lot of trouble stirring in Jerusalem and they decided to send Paul away, it was Barnabas that accompanied Paul to the city of Caesarea where Paul got a ship and went back to Tarsus. So this same Barnabas, not an apostle, but just a brother, a beautiful brother, son of consolation or son of comfort, he is sent to see what's going on. An ideal man to send because he's a peacemaker. He's very open. We hear that a lot of Gentiles are believing in the Lord. Go see what's happening, Barnabas. Perfect man to send. Because he's not really limited to the strict Jewish thought. He's open to what God might be doing. So when he came, he saw the grace of God. He saw this marvelous work of God's grace in the people there. And he was glad. And he exhorted them that with purpose of heart, they should just cleave to the Lord. And and thus exhorting them now. Now we find that they were speaking of Jesus, they were preaching Jesus, and now here is Barnabas exhorting them to cleave unto the Lord. And speaking of Barnabas, it said he was a good man, and he was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and many people were added to the Lord. A great move of God's Spirit and work of God in Antioch this pagan city then departed Barnabas to Tarsus to search for Paul the the Greek word is is that of searching diligently as Paul saw the i mean as Barnabas saw the work among the gentiles he realized that Paul would be an ideal person to come and to minister there. Now, it had been some seven years since he had seen Paul. When Paul first encountered Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, he did not return immediately to Jerusalem but went out to the desert of Arabia. And there for three years he was taught of the Spirit. He then came to Jerusalem. He went back to Damascus and then came to Jerusalem. And there was such a stir that for just the sake of peace they sent Paul away to Tarsus. And he's been gone Tarsus for seven years, which means that Paul really didn't begin his ministry until 10 years after his conversion. Now, there are many who want to begin immediately ministering as soon as they are converted. And that's good. Share what you have. But don't be disappointed if God puts you in the desert for a while to learn, is if he just takes you to school for a time, training you, preparing you. Now, Paul is ideally prepared for this ministry because he was born in the city of Tarsus, a city of strong Greek culture, and his early experiences were an introduction into the Greek culture. Culture, But being of the tribe of Benjamin and having a father devoted to God and to the law, Paul was sent for schooling to Jerusalem where he sat at the feet of Gamaliel and excelled in his studies. But he has a Grecian cultural background A Hebrew education in the scriptures. When he comes to Jesus Christ, the whole Old Testament comes alive. He can see where Christ is indeed the Messiah, and he can prove from the Old Testament that Jesus was the Messiah. In the church in Antioch, they needed a man who was skilled in the scriptures but one who would understand the Grecian background. And so, as Paul wrote, I was separated from my mother's womb under the gospel. In other words, God had his hand on me from the beginning. My birthplace, my early life culture in the Greeks, my study in the Hebrew scripture He saw where God's hand was on him all the way along. And so Barnabas, knowing Paul, having met him and introduced him and sort of was the uh, go between and bringing him into the church in Jerusalem, as he is there in Antioch, thinks, wow, the ideal person for this is Paul. I need to find him. It's interesting how that so often, As we go through, we meet people and we become a little acquainted with their background and with them. And years later, there will come an opening and I'll think, oh, they would be the ideal one for this. It doesn't always happen immediately. I've got quite a card catalog up here of, of people and their talents and capacities. And, and when a need arises, I go through, yes, perfect. That's, you know, the perfect one. And thus we've been able to facilitate for a lot of people, a place in the ministry, because you you know their background, you, you know where they're coming from, and then... And sometimes it's years later that you see a situation and you think, yes, they're the ideal ones. And so Barnabas, independent of the church in Jerusalem, there in Antioch, thought Paul would be the one. So he goes to Tarsus and he searches for him. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people, or many people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Now, they were speaking of the Lord. They were preaching Christ. Barnabas was exhorting them. And now, for a year, Paul and Barnabas are there teaching them the various aspects of the ministry. Speaking of the Lord wherever you go. Preaching Jesus Christ, proclaiming the gospel to people. Exhorting people to right living and then teaching them in the ways of the Lord. Various ministries within the body. And so for a whole year, they were there, and, and it was a big church. It was a successful ministry there in Antioch. And there is where they first got the name Christians. Now, it's, it's a combination of Greek and Latin. It's a Greek, the Christos, with a Latin ending, enneos. so Christianity, uh, like Christ, it was a sort of, and the uh, the people of Antioch were were sort of great for giving names. Uh, when there was a Roman emperor, and I can't pull in his name right now, but this Roman emperor came to Antioch, and he had a beard, and so they called him the goat. <laughs> Evidently, he had a Beard, you know, sort of look like. So he, the, the the people in Antioch called them the goat. Here they're they're calling them Christians. It's a derisive kind of a name, but they liked it. They picked up on it, and thus the name Christian has been something that sort of like you know the press started writing about them. They say the Christians, as as they used to say the Jesus freaks uh, or the Jesus people, and. Uh, it was sort of a, meant to be sort of derisive, but uh, the believers liked it. They, they picked up on it, and thus they accepted the name Christian, which indicated Christ-like. And that name was given to them there in Antioch. Now, in those days, there were certain prophets from Jerusalem who came to Antioch. So again, a, a further ministry, prophets. See the diversities coming and speaking to the people. And there was this prophet who came from Jerusalem. Now, the prophets were sort of uh, nomads. They went from place to place. And uh, in the early church, there were these men who were prophets who would go around from church to church exercising their gift. And the gift of prophecy could be foretelling or it could be forthtelling. It could be speaking forth the word of God. He that prophesieth speaketh unto the church to edification, to exhortation, and to comfort. So they would come and they would speak words of exhortation or comfort to the church. Now, there were also false prophets that were going around. And they were a plague in the early church. So in about 100, the early church wrote sort of a little teachings of the apostles, known as the Didache, in which they gave certain rules for a person who would come in declaring themselves to be a prophet, How that they would be able to discern, basically, if he were a true prophet or not. And I think that the the guidelines that they set down are very good. If he came in and took an offering, he's a false prophet. (laughs) If he stayed more than one day and didn't go to work, he was a false prophet. If he ordered in the name of the Lord that a meal should be prepared for the poor, if he ate of the meal, he was a false prophet. And and they had several such rules, but mainly they could tell the false prophet because his mind was upon money, upon getting money and support from the church. They were to feed him, they were to shelter him for a night. But then he was to move on, or he would be branded as a false prophet. But there came prophets from Jerusalem to Antioch. And there stood up one of them named Agabus. Now, we're going to be meeting Agabus later on in the book of Acts, so file that name, and we'll get back to Agabus a little later on. But this prophet Agabus, signified by the Spirit, and, and this is where prophecy is foretelling the future, he signified by the Spirit that there was going to be a great dearth throughout all the world. And this did come to pass in the reign of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did, and sent it by the elders and by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So Paul and Barnabas returned to Jerusalem with an offering from the church in Antioch to help The brethren in Jerusalem. It is interesting that this early, and of course it is now about 12 years from the inception of the church, that financial problems have already begun to arise as the result of their experiment in communal living, where everyone sold their possessions and brought the money. That that can be sort of a Ponzi kind of a scheme. You have to keep getting new investors or things are going to get bad. And, uh, and, and they got bad in Jerusalem. Uh, it's a thing where it was probably motivated more by just emotion and excitement than by the Spirit of God. There's no place where it said that God ordered them to sell their possessions and to form a common purse. That was something that was done spontaneously. And, and many times things get started in the church sort of spontaneously. One person does it and everybody says, Ooh, ah, did you see, did you know, ooh, you know. And you think, hmm, you know. I wish they had ooh and ah, an o oh over me, you know. So you follow. And, and it gets to be something that everybody who wants the oohs and the ahs, uh, they, they follow suit. But it wasn't something that was directed or ordered. In fact, we we remember the case of Ananias and Sapphira, who sold but held back a part of the possession. But they gave the pretense of giving all. A bit of hypocrisy here. And Peter said, while you had it, was it not yours? In other words, did anybody ask you to sell it? And the answer obviously is no. When you sold it, were you required to bring in everything? And if... Answer is obviously no, they didn't have to do that. Their sin was not in holding back. Their sin was in the pretense of giving everything when secretly they were holding back, or it was hypocrisy, the curse of the church. And so already the church is in financial straits in Jerusalem. Paul, again later on in the book of Acts, will be going to all the Gentile churches to collect an offering for the poor brethren in Jerusalem. So, here we find Paul returning to Jerusalem. Now, it is interesting, as as you see the progression of things, how that each each subsequent event was sort of related and tied to an earlier event. God, and thus, when you see the pattern, you see that God is weaving the whole thing together. The Holy Spirit is directing fully the activity of the church as things are interlinked. The persecution and the death of Stephen caused, and the subsequent persecution, caused the spread of the gospel. Men going as far as Antioch, Cyprus, and Phoenicia This was all tied to Stephen. Paul's conversion. He's he's there watching Stephen. He's listening to Stephen. And then he watches him as he is stoned, and he hears his prayer. It begins to work in his mind, in his conscience. And on the road to Damascus, the Lord stops Paul and says, look, it's been hard for you to kick against the goats. Paul then coming to Jerusalem, Barnabas sort of taking Paul in and front-running for him in bringing him to the apostles. Knowing Paul, understanding Paul's background, accompanying Paul to Caesarea as he heads back to Tarsus. So he knows of Paul and he knows of his capacity. You see, it's all tied together. God's working the whole thing together and each event is is tied to something of the past. It's awfully interesting when you get to my age (laughs) if you make it that far. (laughs) It's awfully interesting to be able to look back and you can see how God was intertwining events and circumstances all the way along. Things that we didn't understand at the time Things that we sometimes were even rebelling against because we didn't understand them. But now as you look back, you can see, yes, God brought to pass this relationship. He had me there in order that he might put me here. In order, And you can see how the whole thing was linked together. So that song, all the way my Savior leads me, What have I to ask beside? And you can see where God's hand was all the way along. And thus you see it here in the book of Acts, how that each event relates to another and how that God uses a wide variety of ministries. Speaking about the Lord, preaching the Lord, exhorting, teaching, prophesying, a wide variety of ministries. But there's one body, one church, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God who is above all and through all and over all. And it and it's wonderful to see how God works through the various ways in building up his body, the church. And so here we have a part, and we're thrilled to have this part in the work of God's Holy Spirit in seeing the hand of God still at work, and each event being related to some event of the past, his hand at work all the way. Let's turn now in our Bibles to the 12th chapter of the book of Acts as we continue our journey through the Bible. Now at that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. Herod the king was Herod Agrippa the first. Now, the first Herod that we meet in the New Testament is Herod the great. And Herod the great confused things tremendously by having ten wives and children by these different wives. So that most of his sons were only half brothers, because most of them were born from different wives. He had two wives, to confuse things a little more, by the name of Marion, uh, The one Marion he seemed to love more than the other wives. However, he thought that she was conspiring with her sons to overthrow him, so he had her put to death along with two of her sons. He then felt remorseful and built a beautiful tower for her in Jerusalem. But his other wife, Miriam, had a son by the name of Aristobulus. And Aristobulus had a son by the name of Herod Agrippa I. He had a daughter by the name of Herodias. Now, another son, Herod Antipas, was the Herod who was called the Tetrarch because he was over a third part of the original Herod's kingdom. And he had built the city of Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee as his capital because he was ruling over that section of the country.
0: We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the book of Acts in our next broadcast. As Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on King Herod, and we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Acts 11 through 12 when visiting the WordforToday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD, and our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628.
1: For the work of your Holy Spirit in and amongst your people. And how, Lord, you've guided and directed the activities of the church from the beginning. And how we can look and we can see, Lord, how you've put things together a contact here, an experience there. And how, Lord, Your timing and your work has been so beautiful. And we've had the privilege and the opportunity, Lord, of watching you work in these days. Lord, continue your work. May we ever, Lord, be open to you and to the leading of your Holy Spirit that you might build your church even as you promised. Lord, guide us, direct us. We acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Lord and He is the head over His body, the church. And so, Lord, we are here to serve You, to listen to You, to receive our instructions and our orders from You, that You will guide and direct, Lord, every phase and every activity of the church, to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. May the Lord watch over you, bless you, give you a beautiful week. As you are led by the Spirit to speak to someone, maybe to proclaim to them the glorious gospel as you've come to know it. Perhaps to teach and instruct perhaps to give a word of exhortation or comfort. May you be an instrument through which God can work and does work this week in Jesus' name.
0: This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California.
2: The Word for Today would like to invite you to come along on a revolutionary study of the Bible as we introduce Pastor Chuck's Genesis Commentary in an ebook format. Not only will you have Pastor Chuck's in depth commentary, this ebook allows access to enhanced research studies by honored Christian scholars instantly. Features include Hebrew and Greek word definitions, as well as images of historical maps and places just by clicking or touching your screen, an online dictionary, plus highlighting, note taking, and bookmarking. And everywhere Pastor Chuck shares what he learned or studied something, you now have access to those very same notes to get ready to study the Bible in a whole new way. Now you don't have to imagine what it was like to be there. This is the next best thing. To find out how to download Pastor Chuck's Genesis Commentary to your electronic device, please call The Word for Today at 800-272-9673. Or to watch a video demonstration, visit us online at thewordfortoday.org.